You're listening to a Rock Candy podcast. This is Sacred Tension, the podcast about the discipline of asking questions. My name is Stephen Bradford Long, and we are here on the Rock Candy Podcast Network. For more shows like this one, go to rockcandyrecordings.com. All right. Well, in this episode, I am incredibly excited to talk to Seth Moskowitz from Persuasion Magazine about his article, The Reactionary Trap. I think it's incredibly useful. But before we get to that, I have to thank my patrons. My patrons are my personal lords and saviors. So if you would like to support my crippling content creation addiction so I don't have to do unspeakable things on the street, then go to patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long. For a dollar, three dollars, five dollars a month, you get extra content every single week. And you also get access to my patrons only podcast, House of Heretics, where myself, a Satanist, and my co host, Timothy McPherson, a former Salvation Army officer turned Christian heretic, discuss what's going on in the world. We talk about politics, we talk about religion, we talk about philosophy, we talk about the latest news. This week, we talked about the horrible, horrible news out of of the Supreme Court. So we discuss whatever is going on in the world from our unique, sometimes dissonant perspective. So if that is interesting to you, then please become a patron and every little bit helps. This is a one-man operation here. I do all of the booking, all of the writing, all of the recording, all of the editing. It's a lot of work, but I believe in bringing this to the public for free because we need interesting and engaging conversations. I need your help to keep it going. For this week, I have to thank the patrons King Zombie, Eidos Estart, and Lunar Loon. Thank you so much. I truly could not do this without you. All right. Well, with all of that finally out of the way, Seth Moskowitz, thank you so much for joining me. I so appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm very excited to be here. So tell us some about who you are and what you do. Yeah, so I'm Seth. I'm an editor at Persuasion Magazine, um, and I do some freelance writing as well. Persuasion's a Substack newsletter that essentially focuses on contemporary politics from a small L liberal perspective. So we have pieces from the left and from the right trying to understand current politics um, internationally and domestically here in the States, um, all coming from a small L perspective. And when you say small L liberal perspective, what do you mean by that? Yeah, so I mean, when you when you say small L liberal, essentially what you're saying is perspective of the of politics and of government that takes the first priority of those institutions to be maximizing individual freedom, um, essentially a rights based individual system. Right. So it it focuses. I always like to think of small L liberalism as kind of focusing on the two furthest poles of human identity being the individual and our universal humanity. And so it's like in- emphasizing the you know individual rights, individual freedoms and kind of our our shared humanity as the most important identity that we share together. Would you say that's that's like a a good way of thinking about small l liberalism? Yeah, I think that that's a good way. You know, I, this is actually something that I sometimes have a hard time with because it's such a loose concept and a constellation of ideas that is you really have to try to tie together because it 
comes from a long history of philosophical ideas and government institutions, that sometimes it's hard to say like what el- what is a, a liberal society or what is a liberal. Um, but I think that's a pretty good way to do it. You know, I think on the one side there's there's liberals who say that the prior priority should be maximizing individual freedom, and then maybe on the other side would be communitarians who say that the the primary goal of society should be to search for the common good. And I think in some ways those are kind of the the poles as I see them. I'm a big fan of persuasion. I've been reading it since it first started. And it is started by Yasha Monk. Is that right? Is he the founder? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah. Yasha Monk is a fascinating guy. He writes a lot about like totalitarianism and yeah. So it's a and, and I've learned a lot from the persuasion community like i've i i find it a really engaging and gently gently pushes me to consider perspectives that maybe i haven't previously so i really 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 love persuasion you wrote a fantastic article i believe it was earlier this year was it in january january 14th is yeah yeah back in january so so you wrote an article called the reactionary trap and you I found this article so helpful for understanding like the story arcs of so many people online and some of the intellectual pitfalls that I have noticed myself falling into over the years. And it is such a helpful heuristic for understanding so much. So so at the beginning of this article, you start with a story about a guy named James Lindsay. So... Tell us who James Lindsay is and and what you witnessed on Twitter with James Lindsay. Oof, telling you who James Lindsay is, is is tough. So I guess it's best to go back. I think it was in 2017 or maybe 2018. Him and a few colleagues. He, he was a pretty normal progressive. I think he was he called himself a liberal. And he and a few colleagues worked together to write fake research papers that they ended up submitting to national journals and the research papers that they wrote that were kind of that that were blatantly fake were kind of going too far on the social justice agenda they they took things to the extreme and their goal was to show that these journals and the liberal intellectuals were not serious people and they weren't taking their work seriously they kind of swallow anything whole that was in that far left progressive milieu um and that's an interesting project you know it's kind of interesting to say and learn like how what what will these journals accept and how far are they willing to go to accept the new progressive dogma that's been floating around and so that's how for, he first got his name out there but then progressively from like around 2017 to 2022 he just slowly started getting more radical and strange in the things he was posting until the point where he was radically against anything that was coming from the progressive social justice side of the spectrum and essentially, he turned into a troll. Like from 2017, when he was somewhat normal, liberal, had interesting critiques of, if you can call it wokeness or social justice. And then fast forward to 2021 or 2022. And essentially, his whole persona online is making fun of people who are progressive and seriously over-exaggerating the harms that wokeness might have to the point where he's saying that there's going to be some kind of civil war, or maybe that people who are woke are trying to commit some kind of a genocide against white women to the point where he's really gone off the rails from a few years ago when he was a relatively 
interesting person to listen to. Yeah, you have here, looking through Lindsay's Twitter history is like watching a train coming off its tracks. And then later, in 2021, he warned that a literal death cult is running the Western world into the ground right now and claimed that critical theory approaches to education are meant to psychologically damage your children so they can be used in a revolution that will rob us all of our freedoms. He has gone so far as to declare that inclusion, COVID policy, and justice are Trojan horses for communism. Yeah, so, and I I had the same experience with James Lindsay where, so I read his book, Cynical Theories with Helen Pluckrose, and by the way, I have interviewed Helen Pluckrose. She's super interesting. And I still don't know what I think of the book, Cynical Theories, and I don't know entirely. I'm, I'm still kind of forming my thoughts on Helen's critiques and, and whatnot and whether I think they have merit or not. So I'm still figuring that all out. But all that aside, their book is not conspiratorial. <laughs> and so I read Cynical Theories and found it a critique I found it a a a good, thoughtful, challenging critique that doesn't mean it's necessarily correct, but it wasn't flying off the rails. And then I get online and I'm like, OK, I'm going to I'm going to hunt down James Lindsay and find him online. And I found his Twitter feed and it was just so absolutely fucking bonkers. You describe this process as being the reactionary trap. What is the reactionary trap? Yeah, so the reaction. So essentially, I think people traditionally think of reactionaries as always coming from the right. It's a political ideology that people think that only conservatives are susceptible to this way of thinking. Because essentially, what a reactionary is is someone who sees the past in some way as something that we should try to get back to. They they have an attention, an intense nostalgia for some previous historical area or some um, social order, and they say, oh, okay, this is what I, want, what I want to go back to. And something that comes along with that oftentimes is a reflexive opposition to whatever kind of progress is happening um, today. And so the reactionary trap, I think, is when people who, are, who see themselves as progressive or on the left side of the political spectrum, they see themselves as immune to becoming a reactionary. And because of that, they they are totally oblivious to these ways of thinking that are the hallmarks of reactionary, where whatever's happening in society, the way that things are changing, maybe are a little bit scary or are or, or causing them to, to kind of overreact to whatever's happening. Um, and they say, OK, well, I'm on the, the left side of the political spectrum. I'm a progressive. So I am in no danger of falling into this reactionary way of thinking. Right. Or they're like, I am I'm I'm so committed to rationality. I'm so committed to, you know, I'm I'm such a clear thinker that there's no way that I'll become reactionary and then lo and behold, you know, <laughs> you see this arc on Twitter. You you define being reactionary as two particular things, which is becoming so preoccupied with who or what they are against against that the foundation of their politics is reflexive opposition rather than first principles or reason. And then two, vastly inflating the threat of whatever 
it is that they oppose driving responses disproportionate to the scale of the harms they critique. And, you know, this makes me think of so, so much of the language I see on the right about wokeness. And I'm like, I will be the first to admit that there is a lot of dysfunction in leftist spaces. I am a leftist and I'm gay. The, the level of dysfunction that I have witnessed in socialist and LGBTQ spaces online is simply astonishing and staggering. And so I will be the first to admit that there is some extraordinary dysfunction and backstabbing and fighting and false accusations and all of that stuff within leftist spaces. But then I see people on the right say, this is a threat to civilization. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to need you to walk me through the steps from A to Z, from there's dysfunction on the left that needs to be addressed to this is a threat to Western civilization. Like that, it, that's the kind of catastrophizing that you're referring to. Something can be a problem without it being an existential threat. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think like, if you go on, I don't want to go back to James Lindsay, but sometimes it's helpful, especially because I think he, he he's so Ellen. he's such an illustrative example, though. So yeah, go he, he, definitely. He is, especially because because him and I know that you said you had Helen on the podcast. I think they're the way that they kind of diverged and split off is so illustrative of the two routes that you can kind of take as a thoughtful progressive who's maybe kind of skeptical of a lot of these ideas that are coming from the social justice woke arena. So I think it's, it is kind of helpful to go to go back to the kind of dichotomy there. But anyways, so if you look at James Lindsay's Twitter feed, I think if you distilled down maybe to like the very essence of what was in one of those tweets that was maybe like, I'm concerned about children being taught something about race in schools. I personally would be like, okay, maybe there's something there that I can agree with. Um, there's, I'm, I'd also be skeptical maybe of teaching students that their race is important um, that they should, the first, one of the first things they should notice about their classmates is what they look like or what their race is. But when you see James Lindsay's tweet, the thing he's saying is they're trying to build an army of children who are going to come destroy the social order we know today or yes. something like that. <laughs> Where it's like, m maybe there's something there that's kind of true, but he takes it so far and vastly inflates the threat to the point where it's just like, this is nowhere on the plane of reality. And I think that's, like you said, those two key tenets where one, you lose sight of what you're for and you lose sight of your principles. And two, become, you become so fearful of what you're against that you inflate the threat to proportion that's just unrealistic. Those are the things that make a reactionary uh, a problem. Because I think sometimes reactionary, polit the, the idea that something in the past was better isn't always wrong. Like if, if sometimes maybe progressive today will look back to the 50s and 60s and look at the union representation and say that's something we want to go back to um Absolutely. which i don't think is is inherently it's not inherently wrong to to look back and say maybe something was better in the past but it's these two other ideas where you kind of become become unable to handle any nuance in combination with wanting to go back to something in the past that makes it a more harmful ideology yeah and it's it's the betrayal of reason because the the past isn't valuable because it's the past. Elements in the past are valuable because they are reasonable to return to. And so the past has nothing to do with it. It has entirely to do with 
where do our first principles lead us? Where do our principles of, of reason and compassion and equality lead us? And that might lead us to say, okay, there's something in the present that's broken and maybe something we did 50 years ago worked better. So we'll go back to that. It has nothing to do with, with an idolization of the past itself. Yeah, and I think I think that's helpful because we have thousands of years of history to learn from. And like you said, like the thing we can look back at history and say, oh, this is actually a pretty good time period. Maybe this is something that that was working for them. And you don't inherently say, oh, we need to go back to the past because it was the past. You need to look and say, okay, this is what they were doing in the past. Let's look at it with reason, with our the principles and, and the things that we value today and think through and have a discussion of, is this something we want to go back to rather than just letting your reflexes of of some kind of fear or uh, reflexive opposition to pro- progressive change that's happening today kind of push you into this mindset where you say anything that's new anything that's changing is is bad so the alternative is to jump back 20 years or jump back to the way things were before do you have any examples of how this reactionary trap the the trap of overinflating the harm to the degree that people abandon their first principles any other examples on the left because we all know that the right does this we all know that that there are you know raging lunatics on the right who are absolutely fucking terrifying any other examples of movements or individuals that you can think of on the left who who are illustrative of this yeah, it, it, you're right. It is harder to find examples on the left. But I think one that's pretty illustrative is the anti-growth movement. I'm not sure if you're familiar I with it. I have never heard of this. What is this? So it's essentially people who are are so worried about climate change, um, which obviously is a valid concern, mm-hmm. that they think that we need to shrink the economy and work against human population. We, we need to shrink the size of human population. We need to eliminate machines and cars and any sort of technology that is causing climate change to the point where we need to actually start shrinking our economy that rather than having positive gdp and continuing economic expansion the way that we're going to solve climate change um, is to shrink the gdp back to what it was maybe 20 or 30 years ago Um, so rather than innovation and trying to create new technologies that will be able to deal with climate change by eliminating the need for fossil fuels, their response is, we need to actually shrink the number of people who are in existence. And we need to degrow, uh, ungrow, shrink the economy um, so that we'll stop eliminate or we'll stop polluting the the earth and causing climate change. Mm. When you say first principles, what do you mean by that? So for me, first principles, I think, come back, come back down to a lot of the ideas that are embedded in, in small liberalism. So the idea that our society the, the first goal and first principles of our society should be focused around making sure that individuals have the freedom to live the lives that they want to. Um, so that's that's where I come from with my first principles. I think generally in America, individualism is an important first principle that we all have. Commitment to democracy, freedom of speech, and the value of open inquiry and open discussion, the value valuing humans as individuals rather than as members of groups and solely as avatars of their skin color, their sex or their gender. Mm. I think all of these are are first principles that I am drawn towards and that I sort of use to to build my political philosophy. 
And I'm not saying that everybody has to share the same ones that I do, but I think that it's important in general to have these sort of principles that you that you use as a framework for building your political worldview rather than just going with your gut instinct because that oftentimes just it isn't the right way to go because humans are at root we're, we're evolutionary created animals that have instincts that are sometimes not right for contemporary society and so you have to try to build your worldview from something a little bit deeper hmm. yeah yeah i'm i'm right there with you and when you say woke so so at the beginning we've been we've been throwing around this word woke which i think has become kind of a trigger word so you know some people will hear us say woke and be like oh my god these you know these white conservative bros using woke as an insult and and they might not be wrong <laughs> because the word woke has has become weaponized so when you use the word woke what do you mean by that i 100% agree with you it's it's a hard word because in some ways it's descriptive but i think a lot of times if you ask somebody to define it they're going to struggle for words yeah um yeah so when i say it i guess i'm i'm thinking of something pretty specific and it's this ideology on the left that's become focused to the point of exclusion of any other sort of principles on the idea of oppression and of oppressors. So essentially, when I think of people who are woke, they see the world as divided in between oppressors and oppressed. And essentially, on any dimension, you can divide the world into those two camps. And one side is good and one side is bad. We need to be helping one side and punishing the other. And the one thing that I'd layer on top of that is that it's a sort of performance. So you need to show other people that you're believing in this ideology, in this worldview. And, and you, it's not something that you can do internally. Because if you have this idea of maybe the world's divided between oppressors and oppressed, and we need to work our first, our first priority, the f most important thing we need to be doing is to be helping the press, then that's, I, w I would say that's an interesting ideology. I wouldn't say that's wokeness. I think wokeness is when you're putting on a performance to show other people that you're good, that you're moral, and that you are on the same team as them. Mm. I can't wait to hear the response to that from, from my audience and see what debates emerge from <laughs> about the, the oh. definition of wokeness. So everyone in my Discord server, please let me know what you think of that. I can't wait to see. I'm curious, what do you have a definition that you, that you go by? So for me, I, I don't know what people mean when they say the word woke, and yet I find myself using it. I, I find, I, I think wokeness is kind of the, the ideological child of thinkers like Kimberly Crenshaw and Delgado and Michel Foucault and so on. And, and I'm not going, and I don't dismiss it wholesale. I think that there are some really there are some really interesting insights there, but neither is it sacrosanct, you know, and, and this is one of the things that I always want to push back against is just be just because the right is turning something like critical race theory into this absolute monster that is coming for all our children does not mean that we have to respond by by term by making it infallible it's like no it's just a school of thought there are going to be some good ideas and there are going to be some bad ideas there and it's like we can keep our heads about us and still rationally parse these schools of thought 
And so I, w- I think I would call myself moderately woke in that I, I think that stuff like intersectionality within certain contexts is a really helpful tool. And it might not be a helpful tool in every context. And maybe taken in certain directions, it actually works against its own causes and its own goals. And it's like this stuff is complicated and there's no, I don't think that there's any school of thought that is 100% true or above criticism. And so that that's kind of how I approach wokeness is it's just any other i i see it as an ideological thing i see it as as being in line with like being the children being the child of like judith butler and <laughs> and bell hooks and all, and all of those people um it isn't it's interesting it, yeah 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 go on go on sorry i was gonna say it's interesting because i think the vast majority of people i i, I actually i think i just I, I agree with you actually but i think the vast majority of the people who we would call woke would have no idea who any of those thinkers are. Yes, I agree. I think most I think most people have generally no idea about the intellectual roots of what they believe. Um just like as a general rule. So, you know, I I'm at the point where I try really hard in my own writing to not use the word woke because as much as I might wish people would not interpret it as an insult, human nature is such that that there are certain people in my audience who will see me use the word woke and just instantly not read any further. And so it's like I have to choose my battles. And so instead, I try to address specific ideas and and maybe not place a label on them. Like what is what is the mm-hmm. what is the specific idea that I am analyzing? I will just discuss the idea itself or the policy itself and maybe avoid the labels yeah i think that's that's the way to go i guess when i i was writing a piece the other day and i also really try to avoid using that word one because it's uh, as we've shown for the last five minutes it's so vague to the point of almost being useless in in using it in a piece of paper or like a publication where you can't explain what you mean and so what i what i opted towards was the progressive turn in 2014 or 2015 towards focusing on identity and oppression. And I think that's something that is not derogatory. It's not, it's kind of neutral. It's true. It, it, it is a, it is a true, it is a true statement. <laughs> and, you know, I, I guess my view of it is there are, let me see if I can contextualize this. I recently read a fantastic illuminating blog post from several years ago by Slate Star Codex um, where he defines what he calls mistake theorists versus conflict theorists. And I don't know if you're familiar with, with this, but I found it incredibly helpful where he described mistake theorists as believing that all of the worst things in the world come as a result of mistakes and that we all are standing around kind of the the surgery table the operating table trying to fix our mutual patient the state the society and some people will have good ideas some people will have bad ideas we all have to weigh the evidence we figure it out together some people will be wrong some people will be more wrong some people will be less wrong but we all have to do it together 
right? And so it's it's a matter of sharing of evidence and weighing of evidence and hearing the different sides and and hearing and so on and so forth. My instinct is hardcore mistake theorist. That is where I think that's my personality and that tends to be where I live in my work is mistake theory. Conflict theory is the belief that all of the bad things in life come from a battle between good people and bad people and between power disparities, which means that conversa- that the weighing of evidence and conversation, they could be helpful, but they will ultimately not advance the cause of justice. And so, you know, he uses the example of, well, if you're talking to your boss and trying to negotiate a raise, there's there's going to be an innate power imbalance there. And if he is trying to throw out, you know, evidence based reasoning for why you shouldn't get a raise, well, he's probably just trying to work against you because of that power dynamic. And so he what he does really brilliantly in this post is he demonstrates how both mistake theory and conflict theory have serious blind spots within specific circumstances. So, and I tend to lean towards mistake theory on average being the more productive approach to navigating life in the world, but power differentials do exist. And so maybe sometimes conflict theory is necessary. But what he really gets at is the fundamental clash between these two worldviews. And I think that this is part of the fundamental clash on the left. You know, there are there is this fundamental division in the left, I think, between what I would call the liberals and the leftists, <laughs> between between the people who are mistake theorists and the people who are conflict theorists. And we just cannot get along. And I think that it is kind of a fundamental personality difference. And I forget, goodness, I, f- I forget w- how I got on this tangent. I was trying to e- e- uh, explore something, but I, I completely lost track of what I was yeah. saying. I, I think the thing that jumps, I think one of the, the, the pieces of our like, political conversation that is really that everything is sort of revolving around is who is allowed to speak and when are they allowed to speak. And I think the, the dichotomy you were going at there between mistake theorists and conflict theorists is applicable there. Because something that I think is fundamental and that I think you think is fundamental is that we should all be able to put our ideas, our ideas yes. out there discuss them. If you have a bad idea, you might get pushed to the side. Your idea, you'll lose other people. You won't win the argument. And I think that's what the mistake theorists would be would advocating want. for. Is Yeah, would want. Versus the conflict theorists would say, we know the good ideas. We have the answers. And if you disagree with us, we're not going to have an open discourse. We shouldn't, we shouldn't have discussions and let the best ideas win because they might, the bad ideas might be harmful and might hurt some people. We need to shut down the bad ideas. We need to make sure that they're not on Twitter, that they're not on podcasts, that they're not out there because they cause literal harm in the world. Um, and I think that's a serious dividing line between the left. And I think it's something that's actually starting to split the traditional political divides that we have and that we're familiar with. So I think uh, when, I agree. When you talk same, about, same on the right as well. I mean, that definitely on the right as well. The, that split is happening too. Sorry, go on. Yeah, no, I, I I agree. I think it's splintering a lot of the political coalitions that we're familiar with. This idea that you need to be able to have discussions and find answers versus 
somebody on your team has the answers and everyone else needs to listen. I think that's something that's going to continue dividing our politics, both on the left, on the right, and creating interesting coalitions between the two. Yeah, yeah. Well, I didn't mean to turn this conversation, this into a conversation about wokeness and and the left and so on. Uh, But part of the reason why I the left and and what one might call the woke mob is because that is the point for me at which I am tempted to turn into a reactionary. And I think that in the past that has been true. And I think part of the reason for that is that anger is an incredibly unreliable emotion. And so if I just follow my anger, my anger is irrational. My anger is not a reliable intellectual force. And I will get angry about different things depending on who I perceive to be my in-group and out-group and so on. And so if I were to follow my anger, I think that I would follow James Lindsay down the rabbit hole. I Because at the end of the day, I am still more angry about the people on Twitter who canceled ContraPoints <laughs> than I am <laughs> about whatever, you know, about climate change. Even though I know intellectually that climate change is a far more horrific challenge that, that you know, many times to whatever power, more of a problem than online cancel culture. But anger is irrational. Anger is not a valid litmus test of what is true. And so if I were to just follow my anger, I think that I would follow James Lindsay. But if I follow rationality, if I follow those first principles, then I have to remember, oh, the Supreme Court just fucking robbed, <laughs> you know, the the Supreme Court just just you know who are who are run by, you know, awful theocrats, just robbed every person in this country with a womb of their potential autonomy. Right, that is a way bigger issue. I don't feel it as much because I <laughs> I don't have a womb, and so anger is an unreliable emotion for politics, is what I'm saying. Does that make sense? I Am agree. I making yeah, any it, sense? I am just verbally processing this as as we're on mic together. It, it does make sense. I, I don't I, I don't know what it is, but for some reason I am drawn to the culture war Me too. issues too. I don't yeah. I, I don't know what it is about maybe it's because they are the issues that get at our identity. They get at the core of what it is to be a man, an American they, about who can talk and who has to listen. There's something about those issues that is you know, that pulls you in more than tax policy or healthcare policy. Yes. Uh, well, or, <laughs> yeah. Good, sorry. Go on. Go on. No, I, I don't know what it, I. I think, and I think that's really where, in a lot of ways, the dividing line in politics is is coming to be set today. So I think that is maybe also why we're both drawn to it because it's it's the sort of thing that. If you're progressive on social issues, then you're on the left, it, even if you want lower taxes or even if yeah. even if you are not so concerned about climate change. So maybe that's the, the reason why I'm so drawn to it, because it does feel like the thing that's sort of splitting apart our politics. And I sort of feel like a need to find out which side I'm on so that I can choose a team. But I don't think that that's the right way to go. Like It's so it's so um, tempting to to try to join a team, to try to join a club so that you can have your people and have mm. answers that are laid out for you. And so going down to James Lindsay route, like you will have your answers. It definitely won't be 
the right ones or the good <laughs> ones. But but um, they but will be they yeah, will but, be emotionally satisfying. Exactly, you'll feel yes. some kind of righteous indignation, and I yes. think that's something that's both the the uh, social justice people on the left and the James Lindsay's on the right. They both feel this right, righteous indignation and the sort of revolutionary aesthetic towards inside of them that they get so and, and that that's a good feeling to be i am so right and i am on the 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 righteous side of this huge civilizational battle that's something that probably feels good internally and it's something that is it pulls me in and it, I can, it seems like it pulls you in and it's hard to push back and say like, this isn't what the actually a civil civilizational fight there's more important things going on Yes. Like the Supreme Court or like climate change or people not having health care. And it, it's easy to get distracted by these these issues that feel maybe more important, even though they're not. Yeah. I've done a lot of introspecting about why it is that because it has like this this cocaine like quality to it where the culture war stuff can be addictive and trying to understand why is it that my mind can just get so easily hacked. And as I've thought about that, I I come to I've come to two possible reasons why, which is one, a concept that my colleague John Moorhead, who does a lot of interfaith work, talks about. And he just he he's he taught me the term heretical disgust. And heretical disgust is a it's a term that came out of religious scholarship to describe the phenomenon in which religious people tend to have a greater level of revulsion and disgust towards people who are technically on their same side, but are not quite like them. And so it's the disgust between Protestants and Catholics or it's the disgust between conservative Christians and progressive Christians. They're both technically Christians, but we tend to reserve our greatest level of emotional fervor and disgust for people who are like us, but not quite. And I think that that is part of what I'm experiencing, where there's this heretical disgust. There are people who are, in my view, heretics, people who call themselves leftists, but are doing leftism wrong. And I think that that gets under our skin more than anything else. And I think it's just a cognitive glitch. And and so that has been helpful for me. And then I think the other thing is the real problems in the world feel so much bigger and unsolvable. It's like, well, fuck, how do I fix climate change? I don't know. It, it feels impossible but you know what i can do i can go after <laughs> yeah i can i can i can criticize uh you know my fellow leftists who i think are doing everything wrong and i'm not saying that i shouldn't like i'm not saying that we shouldn't do that there there has to be because a movement that cannot self-correct is a movement that's doomed to failure a movement that is that cannot examine themselves and be self-critical is doomed to failure. So we should do that. But sometimes I wonder if I if if I and others do that because it it because the the big problems feel so intractable. Yeah, and I think well if you, the problem with that is if you end up spending 99% of your time 
critiquing your own side and criticizing the left in order to what regardless of what your your goal is if it's to kind of cleanse your own side or to make sure that everyone there agrees with you but if in the end what you're doing is you're spending 99 percent of your time attacking people on the left like are you are you really still functionally on the left exactly (laughs) (laughs) exactly yeah so so i think I, i i also feel that instinct and i think it's just something that is ingrained in us to try to make sure that our tribe is pure and that our tribe agrees mm-hmm. with us. But I don't think that's one realistic in such a diverse society where you have to make coalitions with people. And in order to actually accomplish anything, you're not going to be able to root out anyone who mildly disagrees with you. But I think it's something that you need to, to fight against. And another consequence of that is I think that that is actually something that ends up creating the Tim Pools, the James Lindsay's, the, yes. the, the reactionaries is, is that at one point they were on our side and then they did one thing that kind of made people who are on this on our side angry. And then they got dogpiled. They got attacked. And then they took a second and they were thought, "Whoa, is is this really my my team that is atta- attacking me for maybe one heretical idea? If it's on, particularly if it's on an issue of like social justice or race or gender, and they get dogpiled for disagreeing with uh, the the vast majority of people on their side." And they think, okay, maybe this isn't my team. Maybe I need to move towards the right. So I think that kind of idea that we need to push anybody who disagrees with us out of our side ends up creating the people that we started off this discussion um, criticizing, the, the reactionaries who, who were once claimed to be on the progressive side of the spectrum. Yeah, absolutely. I, I completely agree with that. And I, I had a conversation with someone actually who... I think emphasized this where one of the primary readings within my religious community, which is the Satanic Temple, is Steven Pinker's The Better Angels of Our Nature. And I was kind of grousing over this because, you know, Steven Pinker, he's fine. Um, but there are other ways in which I think I I really disagree with him. And there there are ways in which and and I was kind of grousing about that, like, oh, I wish he wasn't primary reading for TST, I wish, you know, I, I, you know, maybe it, it would be better if it was fiction and so more mythic and, you know, more interpretive. And my friend was just like, why? That just creates the purity spiral that that you're so obsessed with. You would you rather have a community where we can only read the right books and where we can only have you know, where we can only have primary reading that we 100% agree with? Or would you prefer to have a community where the primary reading, people think it's flawed and they can discuss that and they can have different perspectives on it? Like, which would you prefer? And I was like, good point. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think think it's something that's like, oftentimes we see it on the left, people uh, who have any heretical ideas are pushed out. But I think it's also something that happens everywhere like i, I don't yes. think it's just this it's, province it's of human nature like you see and especially on, again we've spent most of our time critiquing the left but if you look at the american right the exact same thing has happened to, to even more dramatic effect with donald trump the, their one tenant was supporting the president and now it's believe, like, saying out loud that you thought that the 2020 election was a fraud and if you don't agree with that then you are you are heretical, you were unclean, and you were neat, you were a rhino, you need to be pushed out of the Republican Party. So I don't think it's something that's only on the left, only on the right, only... It's human nature. Who, yeah, it's just, it's, it's, yeah, it's human nature. 
All of us are susceptible. And it doesn't matter how smart or how rational we think we are. We are all vulnerable to these cognitive glitches. No one is above being wrong. And no one is above, you know, falling into these cognitive traps. In the in the last few minutes that we have, uh, do you have time? We we might end up going a bit over un- unless you... That's, that's totally fine. Are you okay with that? Okay. Yep, yep, no problem. Um, because I do want to cover these few points at the end of your piece, which I found so helpful. These various steps to take to avoid the the reactionary trap and you reached out to all of these different figures so you reached out to like Ezra Klein and Matthew Iglesias and so on to get their perspective on how to resist the reactionary trap and I think these are so helpful so the first one you have listed here is do not let the illusions of social media trick you what do you mean by that yeah when you're on social media the people that you see talking are the most extreme most radical people and oftentimes the most angry people who are out there and oftentimes if you're on the left you only see the 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 people on the left and when you see someone on the right it maybe infuriates you and the same thing with people on the right if you have cultivated your the people you follow to the point where you barely ever see someone on the left on the one hand you're getting riled up by all these angry people who are on your own team and then when you see someone who is on the other team you have this sort of revulsion and and instinctual anger towards them um and so i think when you're using social media you just need to be aware that the people who are on there are oftentimes the most extreme people whether you're on the left or on the right and that the institutions of american politics and of american society don't reflect what you're seeing on social media particularly in politics social media is slanted towards the left and our political institutions including the senate are oftentimes slanted towards the right so if you're concerned with the progressive ideology and what we call wokeness um, taking over, you need to take a breath, realize that social media is far more to the left than almost everyone who's out there walking around in real life, and that our political institutions are actually even further lean, tilted further towards the right than everyday society. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's that's one of the things that's so hard about social media is to it makes understanding the scale of anything so hard to figure out it because it's like this this carnival mirror maze where trying to figure out the scale of any problem on social media feels impossible uh i i very much agree and i think it's illustrative of that is how the people the, the big issue on the right the the cultural right right now is the is the teachers in schools theoretically uh, telling students about inappropriate subject matters related to sex and gender. And you see like one video happen like somewhere on Twitter from some random school. And it's something that might be inappropriate, but the, the way that Chris, like some of the activists like Chris Rufo and James Lindsay are presenting this is as if all throughout American schools, children are being taught inappropriate things about sex and gender by what they termed them groomers. Um, and just have completely twisted this thing that maybe there was one inappropriate video somewhere yep. deep on the internet and made it seem like this is a on the scale of happening in your local elementary school. So I, I think that I agree with you, like getting a sense of scale for if these are problems, how, if they are a problem, like how serious are they is extremely difficult with social media. 
Yeah, and then libs of TikTok will collect, you know, these the 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 tiny handful of teachers doing something weird and the whole universe freaks out and then, you know, go yell at teachers at at a town hall meeting or whatever. And it is just not ideal. It is not an ideal situation <laughs> because it's it's totally disproportionate to reality. And um yeah, so I, th- the only thing that I know to fix that is to just spend less time on social media. Like I I don't know how to fix this illusion other than to just take everything I see on social media with a grain of salt, to be skeptical of everything that I see on social media. And it doesn't matter what it is, be it a video of some police brutality to some some teacher saying something ridiculous. I mean, I need to be, I need to take it seriously, but not credulously, to, to quote Dan Savage. And yeah, skepticism seems like the best starting point for essentially any trend or like picture, whatever you see on social media. Just like skepticism seems like the right starting point, which is kind of an unfortunate way to to view the world. Yeah, I, when you're I on hate social it. Media, yeah, I I fucking hate it. But you know, I so I have so many friends who I know to be good people who I know to be. And, and everyone listening will know who I'm talking about. It's Lucian Greaves, who, when he was in his early 20s, said... So he's the founder of the Satanic Temple, by the way. Um, mm-hmm. And he, when he was in his early 20s, he said some unfortunate stuff on a podcast about Jews. And yeah, it was fucking gross. In my opinion, it was unacceptable. He's in his 40s now. Mm-hmm. And... But the... And and he and I know him to be incredibly committed to progressive values and to universality and equality. And I know him to in no way be a prejudiced person. And and yet this thing from 20 years ago will just keep resurfacing and and people will build these narratives and these, for lack of a better term, lies about Lucian Greaves. And I've just witnessed the way in which the, you know, lies spread so fast on social media and how delusion spreads so fast on social media and they can seem so convincing where it's like you hear an audio clip of someone and you're like, oh, okay, there, there it is. You must be a monster. But it's, but it's always more complicated than that. And so I guess watching how some of my friends have have had just horrible untruths spoken about them online has really made me skeptical about everything I see on social media. Yeah. And I think like, both in that specific circumstance and in general, like, I don't think this is a problem that's going away. One, because mm-hmm. I don't I, I don't know how there's a recording from like, like I guess I guess it was 20 years ago. So that makes sense. But now anybody who is any prominent person is going to have videos from when they were stupid and 15 or oh my 20. god yes <laughs> whether, whether it's like just like messing around with friends or they were on a podcast and said something that's either at the time was unacceptable or because things are changing so fast like what's acceptable to say is changing so fast that something that was acceptable in 2014 could now 
get you in big trouble. And I think like what's important is to have a sense of perspective about one, was what they said acceptable at the time? And if it was, then maybe you need to understand the, the, the progression that's happened since then. And then two, if it wasn't acceptable about, at the time, you can condemn that person who they were 20 years ago. But if they've changed and if they've talked about it and if they've grown, then it doesn't make sense to keep holding this thing over their head um, and bringing it up 20 years later when like, you're a whole new person 20 years down the line. What matters exactly. is what you're thinking and saying today or yesterday, not, not in 20, 2002 when like, George, George Bush was president. It's the eternal nightmare for me because there are there's hundreds of hours of me online just running my fucking mouth. <laughs> and I'm like, I have no clue what what I say. I have no clue <laughs> what I said last year. I have no clue what I said five years ago. Like, and it's hundreds of hours. <laughs> and so I'm just waiting for someone on Twitter to just clip something that I don't even remember and and post it and be like you see this he's he's defending something you know horrific or whatever but yeah that's <laughs> it. well if that happens just i guess, I guess I, I, the only thing you do is say, if it was wrong say well that was wrong i don't believe that now yeah and if you still believe it you defend it and i think I yes. it sounds like your your supporters are quite uh, understanding of oh they're very thoughtful being. yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. they're, they're person, very humane so. and when they and when they do disagree with me i love my discord server because uh they will they will sometimes push back and that's great. That's what a community is for. They'll push back on me, but they will always do so in such a thoughtful and compelling way. And I'm, and so I'm really, really proud of, of the community uh, that has grown up around this podcast. So yeah, that, that's great. The second one you have here is learn to recognize and avoid us versus them thinking. What do you mean by that? Yeah, I think that one's pretty key to this. I think, if you, if you end up seeing a world divided between good and evil, between us versus them, then you end up, one, not being able to think through and really critique your own ideas and think, why do I believe the things I do? What are the real rationales behind my political philosophies and, and ideas? And then on the other hand, you start to see anybody who's on the other political team as evil or as a, a danger and any of their ideas as the same, as inherently something that you need to be on defense from, not potentially either learning from or using as something to strengthen your own beliefs and your own ideas. So I think there's really nothing good that that can come from this belief that I'm on this team, they're on that team, I'm good, they're evil. I think what you need to be doing is trying to be picking apart the arguments that people are coming with and thinking through the ideas that you hold and, and the principles that you value and using the people who you might see on the other political team, not as, not, not as something that you need to fight, but as something that you need to learn from, whether it's their ideas that might be good. It might be teaching you that you're wrong um, or as learning or as something you can learn from to say, okay, I, now I know why my idea is right and their idea is wrong hmm. because I've heard their argument and I'm coming back believing in my ideals even stronger. Um, so I think in general, this idea that um, they're on one team, I'm on the other, and I need to be fighting them at every step of the way is, is no good. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, this kind of hits on something that is a continuous pet peeve of mine 
So my day job is I manage a grocery store in an industrial district in Western North Carolina. And having an us versus them mentality that you so often see online offers absolutely nothing to working class people who by merit of the fact that of their station in life, they they and I cannot self-select our peers. And so I so often feel like the the us versus them never give an inch, never be around people who disagree with you. There is a class element to that because it's very convenient for people to say that when they have a cushy desk job and everyone and they have the privilege to select their ideological peers. People who work at a McDonald's, people who work at a fast food place, people who work at in a factory or in a grocery store, they don't have the they can't do that. And so we have to figure out how to get along with each other. If I'm I'm on the floor with with someone who is a raging Trump conservative and on the other side is, you know, an anarchist syndicalist being being told online to to not ever engage in conversation with people who are like you. And I do think that that is a common refrain in a lot of different places of this is war. Well, that that offers nothing of value to so many working people who don't we don't get to choose who our peers are. And so I have to figure out how to talk to them. I have to figure out how to share a space with them. If I don't, then I lose my job. And, and so I see this, this narrative in certain parts of the left of, uh, you know, to, to share a space is to platform a bigot. And I'm like, tell that to someone who is working, you know, till midnight every night cleaning floors with someone they might fundamentally disagree with. It offers nothing of value to them. Does that make sense? I it's it's it, something it, that continually drives me crazy. Yeah, I mean if you adopt that mindset of uh, us versus them, you're going to be completely unable to function out in the real world. Yes. It, and you might be able to be good on Twitter, but if you yeah, if you go to the grocery store and you see someone wearing like a, a Trump t-shirt or a Biden t-shirt and you eat, Yep. Or you you have to work with them or engage with them, you're just going to be totally unequipped to deal exactly. with everyday situations. Um, so yeah, I, I agree with that. It's, the, it's a problem both ideologically and practically. The the metaphor that I keep using is I don't know if you're familiar with C.S. Lewis, but he wrote a book called The Great Divorce, and and the concept in The Great Divorce is that there's a bus that goes from hell to heaven, and hell is like this this a smoky immaterial place and the ghosts go from hell to heaven. And it's like a whole religious allegory thing. And in heaven, everything is so real and so solid that the blades of grass cut the ghost's feet from hell. It's like they are so immaterial and heaven is so Mm -hmm. solid that the blades of grass, that they cannot even walk on the grass because they're so kind of fragile and, and immaterial. And that's really I think a good metaphor for going from the internet to reality, going from the internet to the world. It's like if if we spend all our time on Twitter in in our political spaces online, that will not equip us for engaging 
with peers in a work environment <laughs> or or with or family, family members. Yeah, or exactly. Friends or, yeah. Exactly. And and so it's like the blades of grass become so sharp that they cut us and and we become so unresilient. Let's see. The 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 next item you have here is be skeptical of convenient narratives. What do you mean by that? Yeah, I think this is what we're talking about. One is if you're on one because if you're on social media, you're going to see a lot of things that happen to align with your political ideology. Those could be right, they could be wrong, but if you're going to instinctively just go along with whatever you see, you're going to end up believing a lot of things that are wrong and are straight up just incorrect. Um so I think like we were saying is one when you're on social media it's better to be skeptical of everything that you see two is that if if you are so deep in your political beliefs that everything just happens to align so nicely and so perfectly that um there's no com- complicated questions in the world that everything is kind of my side my side good their side bad i have the answers obviously and they're just not thinking or they're evil like that is that is just not a true reflection of how the world works. So if you see yourself falling into these convenient narratives or thinking about the world in a way that it's easy and not complicated and that the answers are obvious, then you're missing something. You need to be thinking about this in more detail. The world just isn't that simple. Um so those that's generally what I was thinking of when I when I wrote that is one when you when you're on social media and talking to people in politics, be skeptical um when you hear something that happens to align with your ideology because one it could just be conveniently placed in front of you due to the algorithm and it could be incorrect two is it might just mean that you have a overly simplistic world view um and aren't thinking through the issues to the extent that you should be yeah to quote cal newport and i wrote a blog post about this i'll if i remember to i'll post this in the show notes uh don't be an intellectual groupie um he says most people online on Twitter are intellectual groupies and they don't actually seriously engage with the content of said philosopher with Noam Chomsky or whoever on the right or whatever. Instead, it is intellectual groupism and you're either in or you're out. And and the answer to that is instead read the best work for and read the best work against. Read a book that is the best argument against a point and read the a book that is the best argument for the point and let those clash in your psyche let it fuck up your life let it kind of let it let it mess you up let it and let your roots grow deep as a process and that's where wisdom comes from is is letting that clash take place and and it will absolutely fuck up your <laughs> your it will it will kind of ruin your life online but it's worth it um and i see that as the antidote to convenient narratives and then the next one you have is avoid the zeal of the convert what does that mean yeah that means so there's this tendency when people join a new religion or join a new group that rather than becoming just a traditional member of that group that become the most fervent believer in it they become the radical and so this is what we're talking about with James Lindsay and um and other people were talking about on social media is that they were once on the left Dave Rubin they, a great example Dave Rub- yeah Dave Rubin Tim Pool yep. um all these people who yeah were once theoretically progressives are on the left and then swapped over to the right sort of sublimated skipped like the middle ground and kind of just went straight from progressive to far right reactionary they 
fell into this trap where they became the most fervent believers in their new ideology. And so that's that was my ways of think my thinking in this is that it's good to change your mind and it's good to think through issues. And if you it's always good to exchange error for truth. And if you do that, then you should hold on to the truth. But you, it doesn't mean that you should become the most radical, most extreme, loudest person that you can be just because you think that you've found this new truth that um, is more representative of the world. Absolutely. And then the final point you have here is take seriously the possibility that you are wrong. I think this is pretty self-explanatory, but but explore that for, for us. Yeah, I, I think that one, if, if everybody or if these people who have fallen into the reactionary trap didn't just sneer at the people who disagreed with them, didn't just mock and troll on social media and ser- took seriously the possibility that their critics had a point and were willing to think through those points and were willing to question the way that they believe that maybe they'd end up climbing out of the trap. And also just, it's good advice for everybody. Just, I definitely don't know everything. And I, when I, I've, I've changed my politics pretty radically. It sounds like you have too, to some extent um, over the past four years. And this idea that you're right, that you have all the answers right now and that in five years you won't feel differently is just an intense amount of hubris and and unrealistic to the point where we all should just be always questioning and and asking if maybe we have this one wrong. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I find really helpful is to just think back on my timeline and think about all the things I once believed that I now think are wrong. And it is the majority. <laughs> <laughs> like I used I used to be a fundamentalist Christian. I used to believe gay marriage was wrong i used to just all of these all of these various things from philosophically to politically to and i've been all over the political map i've been uh from from right to left over the course of years over the course of figuring out what i believe and the obvious pattern that emerges from that is that i am is that my track record is that i am wrong way more often than I am right. (laughs) And so the question then becomes, okay, well, what are the underlying principles that are guiding this process? And to focus and double down on the underlying first principles. And even those, you know, aren't above reproach. We should examine those first principles. Um, But to think really critically about what are the first principles that guide my beliefs? And that is, I, and, and I find that a really helpful process. And to just remember, like, yeah, my track record is that I'm wrong way more than I'm right. Maybe a bit of humility is in order. <laughs> yep, me too. I think, like, I, I think back to when I started college in 2013, and then I, like, I was pretty far on the left in the social justice mm-hmm. area in 2014 and 2015 when that was kind of when the progressive coalition was kind of making that turn i was fully on board with that and so it's yeah you it's it's easy to to look to think like no i have the answers now but i'm pretty sure the vast majority of people who look back a decade and will see that their politics were completely different or that if they changed their mind on at least a few things and if they haven't changed their mind on a few things, that's also somewhat concerning. Yes, so, I'm it, very worried about anyone who is beating this the exact same drum that they were like five years ago. Like that's that's worrisome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's there's something that's like there's definitely been new 
like you should have thought about this in a new way or talk to people who maybe made a good point and there's something going on if you're not changing your mind at all so i think there's a, a healthy balance between the two but overall like none of us have all the answers and we should be learning from each other and asking questions and pushing each other and pushing ourselves to to be seriously taking the possibility that we're wrong as something that that definitely could be happening yeah and talking is a form of thinking sharing sharing in community is a form of thinking and we need each other to do that that collective thinking we're kind of like ants we're really fucking stupid on our own <laughs> but but when we work in a community and and that community has some push and pull and tug and friction that is how we get to solutions i'm a genuine believer in that and you know this just happened a while ago where i people on my discord will remember this this was a week or two ago i shared an article about the did dissociative identity disorder craze on uh tiktok and i posted on posted it on the discord server and i read and i was like oh this is this is cool i like this this is an interesting critique but then my readers pointed out some not not problems with his analysis of the DID craze, but some of the other attitudes that the author was slipping in and and kind of how they they weren't solid. And I was like, oh, you're right. And I'm so glad that I took the risk to share this publicly because I've if I if I'd kept this article privately to myself, then these flaws in it might not have ever come to the fore for me. And so thinking in public is incredibly scary. It's incredibly hard, especially, you know, in the age of social media where you're constantly in terror of your life. So each time I hit publish on a blog or podcast, I'm like, Jesus Christ, am I, uh -oh. is, this the, is this the end? <laughs> is this it? Um, and it never is because my audience is awesome. But it's necessary because that act of thinking in public and that push and pull Think talking is a form of thinking. Talking is how we come to truth, which is why I, I always beseech my listeners for for grace, to have grace on me if I say something stupid, but to not withhold criticism, and why I am always willing to extend a certain measure of grace to others if they if they happen to say something stupid online because I'm like maybe they have to say the stupid thing maybe they have to say the stupid thing in order to get past it I think that's just how humanity works we we are co a collective species and we think in groups we think together through language and through words and writing and and friction and response and if we don't do that and we, if we don't allow the grace for people to say some stupid things every now and then, like my audience has the grace for me to say stupid things, then we never learn. Yeah. And I think there's like this people like we've even complained about social media and the way that we're all so connected. But on another plane, like you, there's this amazing hive mind out there. And yes. my, I, have one, I have one brain here and there's millions of people out there who are smarter and have different ways of looking at problems and why would I ever want to just like wall myself off and isolate myself to one brain when there's like millions and millions of them out there who have completely different like life experiences, educations, like obviously that I'm, I'm going to be smarter and better at thinking if I'm willing to interact and engage and pull ideas from other people rather than just re relying on one brain. It's the same reason that we 
we read philosophy and read history is because other people have things to teach us. And just this idea that we have all the answers is going to lead you to some pretty dark places. Absolutely. And, you know, most of my guests, as much as I shit on Twitter, uh, the vast the, the vast majority of my guests come from Twitter. And uh, so it has it. Yeah. Every everything that you just said. Yes. Signing off on it. Um, okay, great. Uh, do you have so so um, this has been a great conversation and I so appreciate you taking the time to hang out and uh, you, you seem like a great guy and you're welcome back anytime. Uh, thank you very much. Yeah, I actually like I, I feel like just having having to think through the ideas in person and having somebody push you in different directions that you've never gone is extremely helpful. So yeah, I'd love to come back just one, because it helps me think through the issues Two because I enjoyed chatting with you and three, because I'll have to have to engage with, with some of your listeners, because it sounds like you've built a really good community here. And I think that's something that's rare and hard to find. So uh, I appreciate, I appreciate you inviting me on. Awesome. For people who want to find your work, where can they do that? Yeah, so they can follow me on Twitter uh, at skmoskowitz, M-O-S-K-O-W-I-T-Z. They can also sign up for Persuasion. We're on Substack. If you just go to Google and type in Persuasion Substack, you'll find us. And then they can also email me if they want. Uh, My email is just sethmoskowitz0 at gmail.com. Is that the same email address that I reached you at? Yes. Yeah. Okay. You can put okay. it in. The I'll, I'll notes put it in the. Anything. I'll put it in the show notes. You are taking your life into your own hands doing that, but very brave. Um, <laughs> awesome. That's all yeah. good. Yeah. No. Email me if if you think I got anything wrong, or if you think I, I was shabby on my thinking on anything. I'll be happy to to talk and think through it better. Awesome. Um, yeah. And everyone, go go subscribe to Persuasion. I it's a it's a really cool platform, and they have all kinds of really interesting thinkers there. All right. Well, that is it for this show. The theme song is "Wild" by Eleven D Seven. You can find it on Apple Music, Spotify, or wherever you listen to music. The show is written, produced, and edited by me, Stephen Bradford Long. And it is supported by my patrons at patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long. As always, hail Satan, and thanks for listening. 